So at this time, I do invite you to either turn to page 11 in your worship guide. You'll see the passage printed there or open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. I will be reading verses 6 through 18. And I do invite you at this time to stand, if you're willing and able, for the reading of God's word. As you do that, I would remind you this is indeed the word of the living God. It's a precious gift to us. It is true forever in every word. And so may God grant us grace to receive it as such this morning. Let us hear the word of the living God. Romans 9, starting verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, He has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, we have said that Romans chapter 8 is like scaling the heights of Mount Everest. And we enjoyed several weeks in chapter 8 looking at the goodness of and the beauty and the glory of Jesus, of our union with him, of his love for us, the assurance of his love for us. If we say that about Romans chapter 8, we might say that this next section, Romans 9 through 11, is like exploring the deepest depths of the ocean floor. There is indeed beauty there as well, but it is often unexplored territory. And we come upon these weighty matters. They can be incredibly difficult, not only to understand, but perhaps even more difficult to accept and to embrace and submit to. Romans 9 through 11 deals with God's promises to Israel to the future of Israel, and it also brings us face to face with the doctrines of unconditional election and divine sovereignty. And not simply unconditional election, that is, if that's an unfamiliar term for you, we describe it simply in this way. This is the the teaching that God chooses people for salvation before they were ever born. 
not based on any conditions in them, but owing only to his free and sovereign will to the praise of his glorious grace. And this is what we are hearing as we read Romans chapter 9. But it's not just that doctrine that we hear today. We also begin to hear the other side of that coin, you could say. On the one side, there's unconditional election, and on the other side, there's the doctrine of reprobation. This idea that God condemns some people to eternal punishment in a way that may be parallel to but opposite of the way that he ordains others to salvation. And these are very difficult matters, very difficult teachings. One pastor, James Boyce, said that this is the most difficult passage in the Bible. And you might notice that or or sense that from some of the objections that Paul raises, the questions that he himself asks. For example, is there injustice on God's part? Or why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Now, Lord willing, we'll take a few weeks to dive deep into these matters. But as we do so, I want us to keep this in mind. That this entire section, Romans 9 through 11, it's revealing to us who God is. It is revealing to us his character and what is important to him. And especially keep this in mind. As we study this section, Romans 9 through 11, keep in mind the end, the result, the aim. So if you brought your Bible, you might want to just turn over a page or two and you come to the end of this section, the end of Romans chapter 11, and you see verses 33 through 36 where Paul just erupts into praise to God. This wonderful doxology where he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is where our study in this current section is headed. So, so far in our study, we have seen the depth of Paul's anguish for his family, his friends, his kinsmen who are cut off from Christ. And we have seen the gravity of this people's, of Israel's rejection of Christ in light of the glory of Christ. Last week we saw that God's word has not failed. That his faithfulness to his promises and to his people is not to be judged by the extent to which those physically descended from Abraham are saved. We must know and clarify what the promise of God indeed is. And so the reason God's faithfulness is not judged by that is because his promise has always been to a select group, not to the entire nation. And good news for us is that select group includes people who are not by birth Israelites, which is most of us here, if not all of us. And so, God's purpose stands firm. His word indeed is true. So we could say that 
in a sense, last week, it was the faithfulness of God that was on trial before us in this scripture. But now, today, in the passage before us, his justice or his righteousness is put on trial. And throughout this letter to the saints in Rome, what Paul is teaching is often clarified or affirmed by the questions that he asks. So what question does he ask today? Verse 14, is there injustice on God's part? Now, why does Paul ask this question? It's because of what he just said about God's purpose of election, unconditional election. Think of it. If Paul had been teaching that election was based on God's foreknowledge, this is what many people in the church will say, in the sense that he knew beforehand, that he looked down the corridor of time, and he could tell, oh, there's somebody who will choose me. There's somebody who will choose me. And based on that, he chose them for salvation. If that's how it works, it makes no sense to ask, is this fair? Is there injustice on God's part? Is God unrighteous? Because the basis of election, that basis sounds fair to us. People don't generally object to that. If God just gives us what we ourselves have chosen, there's no objection, is there? What people object to is this idea of unconditional election, of God being the one and the only one who decides who will receive mercy and who will not. And that's the focus of this week's objection. Paul's question, is there injustice on God's part? And here's the main point that we'll discover in his answer, his argument. Beloved, God is completely free. And he is perfectly just. He is perfectly righteous to have mercy on whomever he wills. Today we'll consider that main point and then we will draw two conclusions from it. So God is completely free and he is perfectly just, perfectly righteous to have mercy on whomever he wills. He asks this question in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And his answer, by no means. We've heard this before. So the way that Paul asked this question, the very way he asked it, anticipates a negative answer. It would be something like us saying, There's, there isn't injustice on God's part, is there? No, of course not. And then the answer that he gives, by no means, or God forbid, that's the strongest form of a negative answer that's available to him in the language of his time. The way we might say it today, I probably can't say it from the pulpit. But he's already said this seven times in the book of Romans. So the first time was in chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. He asked this question, and some of these are similar to what we're considering today. Does the unfaithfulness of the Jews nullify the faithfulness of God. By no means. Let God be true, though every man were a liar. We heard it in a verse later, verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? 
that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? By no means. God forbid, for then how could God judge the world? We read it in chapter 6 two times, verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. That's unthinkable. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Later on, verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. Over and over and over again. Paul asks his questions, and then he uses the strongest possible way to say, no way. It's impossible. And so now again in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And Paul says, in the strongest way possible, no, by no means, God forbid. He answers with an immediate, emphatic no. God is not unjust. And then, as we have seen him do again and again in this letter, he supports his answer from Scripture, from the very Word of God. He bases his argument on the Word of God, not on his own logic, not on his own sense of right and wrong, not on what he feels, what might work for him, not what he's comfortable with, but, beloved, on the authoritative word of Almighty God revealed in Scripture. So he says in verse 15, For he, God, says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And that's a quote from Exodus 33, 19. It's printed in your worship guide. It was our assurance passage this morning. That word for indicates that Paul is answering the objection. He's answering that question. Is there injustice on God's part? No, there is not injustice on God's part for or because God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now we need to look at the context of this passage from Exodus if we're to understand the argument that Paul is making. Otherwise, it sounds to me, maybe to you, like he's just repeating what he's already said. What he already said in verse 11 when he was describing this doctrine of unconditional election. And he referred to God's choice of Jacob over Esau. Remember, they were same mom and dad, same womb at the same time, twins, before they were ever born, before they had done anything good or evil, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. That's what Paul has just said. And that description of unconditional election is what raises this objection. Well, what do we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And Paul says, no. Well, why not, Paul? Well, because God has mercy on whom he has mercy. He has compassion on whom he has compassion. Well, at first glance, that sounds a lot like what you just said in verse 11. Paul, you already told us that God's election, his promise, his choice is not based on our works, but on God who calls, on God who chooses. Are you just now repeating yourself? You're just saying it again in a different way? God has mercy on whomever he wills. How's that an answer? How's that an argument? How is that a defense? So how do we understand this important argument? Well, I don't know how this will make you feel, but one pastor, John Piper, wrote a 200-plus page book on that very question. 
on this, basically on that word for. I haven't read that entire book, but I have read some of his writing on this and it helped me understand it. I'll share some of that with you today, but he points out that there are two keys for us to understand this. And the first is the context of this quote from Exodus. So we'll look at that. And the second is God's definition or his meaning of righteousness and justice. So that's what we're going to consider now. So first is the key of this, the context here in Exodus 33. So if we go back to that, the setting there is that God has commanded Moses to take the Israelites and to leave Mount Sinai. He has given them the Ten Commandments. He's given them the law on Mount Sinai. And now he's saying, Moses, take these people and go to the land that I promised you. And he told Moses, Moses, I know you by name. You have found favor in my sight. My presence will go with you, and it will go with the people, the Israelites. God had said that, but now Moses wants an assurance. And he says to God, God, show me your ways so that I can know you, so that I can know I have favor in your sight, that I will know that you are with us. And God says, this is where we pick it up in Exodus 33, God says, the very thing that you ask, I will do. And then Moses has that famous response, show me your glory. And this is God's response. I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. So in response to the request from Moses, show me your glory, God says, I will proclaim to you my name, the Lord. And the name of the Lord reveals God's glory. It reveals his character. In the Old Testament, whenever you see the name Lord in all capital letters, that's the name Yahweh, or I am who I am. And God first revealed this to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, when he was first calling Moses. Remember the burning bush? And he's, he's calling Moses to lead his people out of their slavery in Egypt. And he says to Moses, Yahweh, I am. I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So we need to know what that means. I am. This revelation, this name of God is telling us that God is the eternal self-existent one that he and he alone is autonomous he is totally independent he is free free to govern himself and free to govern all of his creation this is the context of the passage that paul quotes from exodus 33 where then god goes on to say right after that this is where he says and i will be gracious to whom i will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So the context shows us that the statement of the freedom of God in mercy is not simply a restatement of what Paul has already said. Instead, it is a powerful revelation of the name and the glory of God. Beloved, Paul is showing us what it means for God to be God. He's answering the objection, the question, is there injustice on God's part? Oh, you think God is unjust? Let me show you who God is. And beloved, we stand on holy ground as we 
observe this revelation. That God is the eternal self-existent one. That he and he alone is self-determining. Totally free. God answers to no one but himself. He is completely free. I want to remind you of Daniel 4. We studied our way through the book of Daniel several months ago. And, okay, so this is personal opinion. But there are just some passages of scripture that you should memorize. Daniel 4, 34 through 37 is one of them. I would urge you to meditate on it at the very least. To read it over and over and over again. So King Nebuchadnezzar, you remember the most powerful king in the world at the time. God had humbled him. He had him eating grass like an animal. Remember that? And then he restored him. And this is what the most powerful king on earth at the time said. Would that Joe Biden and Donald Trump would say this today. Would that Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un would say this today. This was the King Nebuchadnezzar of our day. This is what he said. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. The end of the days, what days? The days when God humbled him. Humbled him to the dust and then restored him. He lifted his eyes to heaven and his reason returned to him. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none, none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And then he closes by saying this, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Beloved, almighty God, your God and Savior and King, he is completely free to do as he pleases. No one can stop him. And no one can question him. God is not accountable to anyone other than himself. It is we who must answer to him. It is we who are accountable to him. God does not have to explain himself or his ways to anyone. So Paul cites what may look like a simple restatement of the reason for the the objection. God has mercy on whomever he wills. But in doing so, he is actually showing us what the scriptures reveal about God. God is utterly free to do as he pleases. He is not constrained in any way by anything outside of himself. So in this context, this freedom is shown to be the very essence of what it means To be God. That he is God and we are not. So this is the first key in understanding Paul's argument. That we would behold, that we would see the revelation of God's glory, his name, his character. That we would actually come to grips with who 
God is. That we would not fashion a God of our own making. But we would come to grips with who God actually is. Absolutely free to do as he wills. He is the only self-existent eternal one. He is the only creator and king and judge over all. And he has complete freedom to do as he wills. And beloved, this God delights to show mercy. He delights to show mercy. Keep that in mind as we study this difficult passage. God is the only one who is always able and right to do whatever he wants. That's the first key to understanding Paul's point. The second is Paul's understanding of God's righteousness. If we're going to say God is not unrighteous, he is not unjust, then what do we mean when we say he's righteous, he's just? God's righteousness is essentially his unswerving allegiance to his own name, to his own glory. Now we can't say that about ourselves because our own name, our own character, our own glory is flawed and sinful. But God's is not. God is righteous to the decree that he upholds and displays the honor of his own name. So God is righteous when he values what is most valuable and he acts accordingly. And what is most valuable is his own glory. Because, beloved, God is holy, holy, holy. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So God's righteousness is his unwavering commitment to uphold the honor of his name and the greatness of his glory. And beloved, it is good news for us, it is mercy for us, that this is what God is like, that this is what he does. And it's that commitment that he has to his own honor of his name, his own glory, that guides his freedom to have mercy on whomever he will have mercy. He is free to do so, And he will always do so in a way that will magnify his name and his glory. Are you catching the theme here? Who's the main character? It's not you. It's not me. We're the created. The main character is the creator. Almighty God. So verse 17 says, Why did God raise Pharaoh up? Proverbs 21 tells us the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, that he directs it like a watercourse wherever he pleases. So every king throughout history, no matter how much power they have, is like a pawn in God's hands. Why did he raise Pharaoh up? To show his power in Pharaoh and that the name of Almighty God might be proclaimed in all the earth. So the key to understanding Paul's argument, to answering this objection of unconditional election, the question, is there injustice on God's part, is to know who God is and to know what is righteous and just in his sight, not ours. Beloved, God is completely free to do whatever he wills. He is sovereign over all, and his freedom, his will, is guided by his character, 
his righteousness. He will always value what is most valuable and he will always act accordingly. He will always do what brings the most glory to his name. And beloved, would that we would love and do the same. That's the first point, the main point today. God is completely free. He is perfectly just and righteous to have mercy on whomever he wills. Well, we might ask, is it unjust? Is it unjust for God to have mercy on some and to judge others? Is it unjust for God to have mercy on whomever he wills and to harden whomever he wills? And Paul's answer is no, it is not. Why? Because bestowing mercy and judgment is a decision that belongs to God and God alone. He alone is the great I am, the creator, the king, the savior, the judge, and beloved, he is good. And he delights to show mercy. Well, let's look now at the two conclusions from this main point. The first one is this. If God has had mercy on you, it is not due to your desire or action in any way, but owing completely to his sovereign free will. Let me say that again. If God has had mercy on you, it has nothing to do with your desire or your actions, but it owes completely to his sovereign free will. We saw this last week in the example of Jacob and Esau. Verse 11, once again, chosen before they were born. They hadn't done anything good or bad at the time. And Paul says directly, not because of works, but because of him who calls. We see it again this week in verse 16. Paul says directly, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. What is it referring to? It is referring to salvation or God's purpose of election. And Paul says clearly, salvation, God's purpose of election does not depend on human will or exertion. It does not depend on what you want or desire. It doesn't depend on some decision that you have made. It doesn't depend on your exertion, your efforts, your actions. Beloved, God's mercy is never earned by those who desire it. It's not earned by those who work the hardest, the most diligent workers, or those who are morally upright. God freely bestows his mercy on whomever he chooses. Beloved, all mercy is undeserved. That's the very definition of mercy. It is undeserved. None, no one has ever, can ever, will ever deserve or earn God's mercy. And no amount of human will or exertion can make someone righteous can atone for their sin. You know what this means, beloved? It means that if God does not intervene in mercy, every single person and all of human history will be damned forever. It is a good thing for us that God delights to show mercy. There is no such thing as ultimate human self-determination. Ultimately, 
God does not save or condemn because of constraints laid upon him by the willing or the doing of man. God is free. And so he acts according to his own wise purposes to uphold and display the fullness of his glory. We must see what Paul is revealing to us from the scriptures. Yes, this is hard. It is hard for our proud human hearts to submit to this with meekness. But this is what God's word says. That God is under no obligation to save anyone. But in his mercy, he has chosen to save some. Thanks be to God that he has or none would be saved. So Paul's main point here is this. God is completely free. He is perfectly just and righteous to have mercy on whomever he wills. And from that, we draw this first conclusion. We don't even just draw it ourselves. Paul states it directly in the text that if God has mercy on you, it's not due to your desire or action in any way, but it's owing completely to his utterly free and sovereign will. And so now we move on to our second conclusion. And that is this. This may be hard for us to understand. It may be hard for us to accept. But beloved, it is good news. It is very good news for us. Why? Why is it good news? Well, for several reasons. One reason it's good news is because it means the gospel is true. Paul begins this section with the question, is there injustice on God's part? There would be injustice on God's part if he punished the innocent. If he punished the innocent. But God is not unjust. So every single person in hell receives exactly, not only what they deserve, but what they had desired. There's no injustice on God's part. But there would also be injustice on God's part if he treated as righteous those who were not. And Romans 3 says, there's none righteous, no, not one. So how can he treat you as righteous when the scriptures have said that you're not? We all deserve God's just and righteous punishment. So how can God have mercy on anyone? How can he justify the ungodly? Now, Paul's already answered this question. Beloved, God cannot have mercy on you apart from Jesus Christ. So hear this. In choosing to have mercy on some, if you have received mercy from God and and God choosing to have mercy on you, he also made the decision to send his own son into the world to bear your condemnation, your judgment, so that he could have mercy on you. He sent his own son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world, to purchase this salvation that he chose to have mercy on you through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. This is good news for us. That God has mercy on whomever he wills. And that decision to make, have mercy on you, he also made the decision to make it happen through the giving and sending of his own son. So that God has mercy on some is good news because it led God to showing his great love for us through Jesus and it leads to salvation in Jesus Christ. 
that God has mercy on some is also good news because it means that some of you are saved. Praise God. Beloved, the Lord is under no obligation to save any of sinful humanity. Yet in his mercy, he has chosen to save some, including most of you. And we rejoice in that. That God has mercy on some is also good news because it means that more will be saved. And many will be this very day all over the world. Praise God. It is also good news because it means that no one can say. Maybe you've heard this. Maybe you've said it yourself. Maybe you're saying it right now. Maybe someone close to you is saying this. But this means no one can say, I am too bad to be saved. I am too big of a sinner. Beloved, God has mercy on whomever he wills. Mercy is God's gift to receive, not yours to earn or to reject. And so Paul understood this, right? Paul would say, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the worst of sinners. And 1 Timothy 1, you can read it later this afternoon. But then he says, Jesus Christ had mercy on me. Why? Well, part of the reason was so that Paul would be an example of the mercy of God so that if others were thinking, there's no way God can have mercy on me. I am too big of a sinner. I am too bad of a person. They could look at Paul and say, he had, God had mercy on him. Amen. He can have mercy on me. Beloved, why was there hope for Paul? Because the giving of mercy was up to God. It was not up to Paul. That God has mercy on some is also good news because for all who are saved, including those of you here today, all who have received mercy, you will be saved to the end. Your lives will end in mercy. So none of you who are already Christians will ever be able to say, I have sinned too much as a Christian. I have blown it. And this is insurance. It's encouragement for all who are in Christ Jesus, perhaps especially for those of you who may be more prone to doubt or those who may have a particularly tender conscience, or maybe those who are grieving a prodigal today. Someone you know and love who is wandering. Beloved, the mercy of God, your salvation and forgiveness, the salvation and forgiveness of those you love is not dependent on you confessing your every sin. It is not dependent on you confessing your sin with the right degree of sincerity. God's mercy in your life is not dependent on you overcoming or turning from your besetting sins. It's not even dependent on your faith. Beloved, your salvation and your perseverance till the end is 100% dependent on God's mercy, on His sovereign choice. And you know what God's record is? of those that he has saved, that he says, I'm going to have mercy on you, and then bringing them safely home, helping them make it to the end. You know what his record is? It's 100%. It's perfect. He's shooting 100%. He's batting 1,000. He has a perfect record, and he always will. As I like to say, you are not going to be the one person in all of history who's going to put a blemish on God's faithfulness. 
It is impossible to do. Why? Because it's not up to you. Because his record depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You know, there are many ways in which there are times in which this passage is not so difficult to understand what it's saying. I mean, that, that seems pretty clear to me. A clear, open statement of the truth. Paul looks you in the eye and he says, it doesn't depend on what you desire or do. It depends on God who has mercy. That's not so, not so hard for us to understand. But it's hard for us to believe. It's hard for us to accept. So maybe it's helpful if we would consider a common cry that you hear in the Gospels. The history of Jesus' encounters with people. You read through the Gospels and when people meet Jesus, what do they often say? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Is that the cry of your heart today? Well, it won't be. And it will never be if you believe that you are in control of your own destiny. If you in any way believe that your salvation is dependent upon you, owning to what you desire or what you have done, you will never get down on your knees and assume this posture of humility and need before Almighty God. But if God grants you to understand, oh, every one of you, I... I pray that God would grant you to understand this more and more every day, even if you're already a believer, that God would grant you to understand that we are in the hands of a just and holy God. And we are without hope of salvation apart from his utterly free and sovereign intervention. If God grants you to understand that, then you will indeed cry out for mercy, which is the only right response. What do you hear from me all the time? We want to put the glory of Jesus on display and invite you to respond. Well, when the glory of Jesus is on display and God invites you, he, he compels you to see it, there's a response that is automatic. It's God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For God and God alone is completely free and perfectly just and righteous to have mercy on whomever he wills. And if you cry out for mercy to him today, you can be sure that of his own free accord, this God will have mercy on you. And when you see that, you will join Paul in his doxology, his praise to the God of mercy. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How inscrutable are his judgments. How unsearchable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.